So in the near future of this podcast, I wanted to do some episodes that actually engage with scripture um, and get into the uh, interpretation of verses and, you know, defense of various positions. Um, but before I do so, um, because I'm going to be engaging with Christian scripture specifically, I thought it would be helpful to clarify my reasons uh, why I identify as a Christian. Already, um, I need to explain my use of the phrase identify as, and, and I simply do that because not every listener will, I think, acknowledge me as a Christian uh, for various reasons, um, because some of my views might seem too far beyond the pale. Um, and so I'm merely acknowledging the fact that not everyone uh, might acknowledge me uh, as a Christian. But um, and, and indeed, you know, as, as Jordan Peterson has asked, who really dare says he believes what he professes to believe? Because if you did believe it, you know, wouldn't your actions be radically different than what they are? So, you know, I, I would say more specifically that Christianity is the ideal toward which I aspire. And Jesus Christ is the ideal toward whom, you know, I aspire and, and on whose actions I attempt, however, uh, unsuccessfully to model my own. But at the same time, given that uh, more or less all of my previous episodes have been pure philosophy, um, some listeners might wonder why I identify as Christian at all. Um, you know, what are my reasons? And so in this episode, I'm going to get into them. I'm going to be, I guess, explaining on the one hand why I believe Christianity um, is uh, the fullness of, of God's truth. And I'm going to be, you know, that I'm, I'm, I'm going to be explaining that to the to, to the non-Christians. And uh, to the Christians, I'm going to be explaining why I don't believe my own views are inadmissible heresies um, and uh, probably incur the ire of both camps in so doing. But um, I just wanted to give it a try here. So what are my premises in this episode? Um, unlike a lot of Christians or indeed believers of any religion, um, I don't simply begin from the book and assume that, you know, everything in the book is true. Why? Because the book said so. And uh, use the book as some kind of inerrant guide to reality. Um, if only because the book has to be interpreted. And what are you going to interpret the book in light of? And to me, the only thing that really makes sense to uh, interpret scripture uh with reference to is, is philosophies, higher order considerations of ultimate reality. So um, rather, my starting point, well, you know, in reality, one's thought processes are never exactly linear. They're sort of simultaneous. I have two starting points, if you like. Um, but one of my starting points uh, is uh, first principles. And so to me, the way it works is you start from first principles and you see that God exists and God is in some sense, maximal love. 
And then what you do is you look among the world's religions and you see which which one uh, most fully uh, encapsulates that that picture of God. And you know, bonus points if if the if you find a religion that not only matches up with it in the sense of not deviating from it in any place, but which actually radically expands uh, upon you know what you thought divine love was and surpasses your imagination of what the love of God would look like if it were acted out in a human life, as I believe, you know, the Christian gospels do. So in some sense, that's starting point number one. And from the standpoint of convincing non-believers, that might be the uh, stronger uh, vantage point, you know, from which to uh, mountain argument but the other starting place is the same as you know that of many christians it's 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 just uh uh well you know finding that that the the testimonies of many christians you know starting with the earliest ones are compelling and finding uh the person uh and, and character of, of jesus to be compelling i don't by any means disagree with the as it were, bottom-up arguments offered by many Christian apologists, you know, uh, evidence from the empty tomb, evidence from preservation of manuscripts, whatever, you know, line of attack they want to make, I won't disagree with it. Um, but I just think that the bottom-up approach or the empirical approach has to be supplemented by the top-down or theoretical approach in order to in order for you to achieve real cogency, I, I think uh, that in some sense, what one is able to do with Christianity is, 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 is almost like on a desert island, begin with considerations of first principles, pure philosophy, and then conclude that, you know, based on the existence and nature of such, an, such a God, it must be the case that he has sought a relationship with humankind. Why else has he invested us with free will? About which, you know, more in earlier episodes. But uh, given that we have free will, uh, and given that God is love, it, it, it's likely that he's looking for a relationship with us. So did he ever reach into history? Are there records of um, uh, interaction uh, with this God in the form of scripture? Like on some level, this is the hypothesis that that uh, considerations from first principles would yield, and then you look for uh, you know confirmation of this prediction uh, in actual history, and see which uh, body of scripture or religious tradition most nearly conforms to, or indeed surpasses your sort of a priori conception of who God is and what is he going to do in the world uh, in light of his nature and what's what what are his messengers going to say so starting from first principles you know who and what is God in general terms I've argued in earlier episodes that you know whether or not you like the word person God is at least a mind I like the word person but uh, 
to me, God is personal means God is a mind. What does it mean to say that God is a mind? God has an intellect and God has a will. So right off the bat, this is going to exclude certain, shall we say, impersonal uh, religions, uh, Buddhism and certain forms of Hinduism. And if we say that there's, if we say that God is ultimate reality, uh, then there's only one God. So there's one personal God, and we've got to look for religions that answer this description. And so uh, there is Judaism, Islam, and, um, you know, probably other less well-known religions, like I'm aware of at least one variety of Hinduism, which is really uh, monotheistic or technically henotheistic. Um, uh, Gaudiya, Vaishnavism, Hare Krishna, uh, and also uh, Zoroastrianism, I suppose. It's less well known. And then you just go through these and see if there are, you know, any glaring metaphysical problems right from the outset and remove uh, those uh, whose sort of errant metaphysical doctrines are intrinsic to that religion's uh, essence or structure. Just to clarify, I'm not saying that um, Zoroastrianism is a kind of Hinduism. And also, it was a bit of an understatement for me to say that I'm aware of Gaudiya Vaishnavism slash Hare Krishna because that's the religion in which I was raised. Uh, so... I need to clarify that. And I also need to clarify that um, I'm, I'm talking about going down the list of contenders and just uh, removing, um, you know, those religions from consideration, uh, removing, consider removing from consideration those religions whose metaphysical problems seem to be glaring. And um, I would do that with uh, uh, Gaudiya Vaishnavism slash Hare Krishna because uh, Reincarnation is really fundamental to their uh, spiritual worldview. And as I've explained in earlier episodes, I just don't think reincarnation makes any kind of logical sense. I'm not saying it it's immoral. I'm not saying it's wasteful, though it's those things too. I'm just saying it's, it's, it's incoherent what it even means to be the continuation of a consciousness with which you share neither memory nor even character. And um, likewise, I think we can dispatch with Zoroastrianism because intrinsic to Zoroastrianism is a dualism between good and evil, uh, such that evil is not merely the absence of good, but is somehow an equal and opposite force to goodness. And I don't think that that really makes any sense. Uh, goodness is defined on its complement, which is not its opposite, but its absence. And that's why the Christian notion of evil as a privatio boni, a privation of the good, uh, is more correct in my view. And that's probably not... Uh, that, that view of evil is pro probably not only to be found in Christianity. I'm sure uh, other forms of monotheism have that as well, like Judaism and Islam.
which have God as the ultimate author of good and evil in some sense. So for me, at least at this point in the analysis, the, the three remaining contenders are Islam, Judaism, and Christianity in no particular order. And now it's time to get a little bit more fine grained about what one's criteria are for, you know, accepting or rejecting a religion or, you know, seeing how nearly they conform to the God, which one dares uh, to deduce from first principles. So let's look at Islam. Um, right off the bat, intrinsic to Islam is a doctrine called uh, Tawheed. I might be mispronouncing it. But um, Tawheed is, is, is the radical unity and oneness of Allah. And uh, for me, uh, this too much emphasis on, on unity or oneness, it gets into like the, the hyper negative theology that leads to divine simplicity. And I'm going to go uh, into more detail later about why I don't think that that can serve a, as an intelligent um, basis for understanding um, uh, who God is or, and what he is as, as ultimate reality. It leads to a rather broken metaphysics. Um, and uh, let's see what else in Islam. There are what seem to my moral compass uh, to be morally questionable uh, teachings and examples. And the rejoinder to my qualms here might be something like, well, you know, God's morality is really actually perfect. And so if you see something wrong with doing you know, any of the things that are, you know, described by the prophet and his companions, then it's really your own sense of right and wrong, which is damaged. Like, there are, you know, essentially two uh, senses of the word good. There's God's good, which is just whatever he does. And then there's whatever we humans and our, you know, uh, irretrievable fallenness, uh, happen to consider good but you know our moral compass is broken and it just spins randomly and what that means is to us it looks like god who is actually ultimate goodness to us it looks like god is like some kind of randomly spinning arbitrary compass but really god's the one who's right and we're we're the broken compass so you know one might say that to me and say that you know anything that appears wrong in Islam by my lights is actually right, and I'm the one who's wrong. And I, I think there's a there's a rather large metaphysical problem in getting too equivocal uh, equivocal about the meaning of the word good, as relates to God and man and in matters theological. Basically, you know, by human lights, what good means is it it increases everyone's you know, well-being. Um, if the meaning of good is actually somewhat different from this, uh, then we have to ask the question, you know, if God appears to be pure, you know, if God appears to do things that are, that are not justifiable uh, with, with reference to everyone's ultimate good, then why is he doing them? Why is God's good good? Is it due to some, you know, law or moral bedrock that 
exists beyond God, has logical priority over him, and God is just taking his cues from that, that can't be right. But then if that's not the case, then what is the reason that God is doing it? Is it pure arbitrariness? Is it is it pure will? Pure randomness? And, you know, neither of those answers is acceptable, you know, in my opinion. To me, theology has to be univocal uh, when it comes to the word good um, as it relates to God and man. All right, so now let's consider the other non-Trinitarian Abrahamic religion, Judaism. Uh, a really central part of uh, Jewish theology, and I think this is true across the board, is the Shema, or the Hero Israel, the Lord is One uh, prayer. And I think most, if not all, rabbis would uh, point to this as the reason why they believe that Christianity and Judaism are not compatible. Christianity is Trinitarian and uh, Judaism is uh, Unitarian. Although uh, Judaism's Unitarianism has taken different forms. I think one of the more radical expressions of it can be found in Moses Maimonides. And uh, by contrast, when you get into like some of the Kabbalist mystics like the Baal Shem Tov, they seem to have had something a little bit more complicated in mind, something a little bit more panentheistic and mystical. But, you know, if we start with Maimonides, we, we have to ask, what is he ultimately even talking about when he talks about a God who is so not only, you know, unique, uh, not only one, but also so unique as to be radically unlike anything in our experience. Uh, this is uh, an extremely negative theology. And uh, to me, the result, the inevitable result of any um, uh, excessively negative theology is either going to be uh, identification uh, of God with nothingness, or it's going to be a, a contradictory description of God. Um, and indeed, nothingness, if you really understand it, kind of is contradiction. It's both X and not X. But um, see, to understand why theologians even uh, consider simplicity necessary, I think you need to appreciate their philosophical worldview. And more often than not, it's a worldview in which... Uh, uh, objects can exist independent of the mind. And um, the fear is that uh, uh, God, uh, if he has parts, then like an object, he can be disassembled into nothingness. And like an object, his parts, in some sense, have logical priority over uh, the whole, because uh, uh, it's the whole is nothing more than uh, the sum of its parts in some sense. But if you view God as conscious ultimate reality, then this is uh, the wrong view to take of God. And indeed, it really leads to nonsensical consequences because you say that uh, the ultimate consciousness is not even consciousness. It, it's, it's, it's not X, but it's not not X. It's some kind of flat 
unrepresentable thing. You can't think of it. Um, you can't even refer to it. So the, the solution is to get away from the frame of mind depend, mind independent objects and go to the frame of consciousness, wherein it is understood that the existence of objects cannot be defined without reference uh, or given any meaning without reference to consciousness. And, and, and consciousness does not have parts, it has aspects. So no one need fear that the consciousness of God can be disassembled into parts like a material object. But that does not mean that it does not uh, decompose under analysis into aspects. So one has to get very clear on this distinction. But if, if one is operating from a kind of naive realist point of view about material objects, then uh, one is going to see divine simplicity as uh, something from which one cannot get away, something that's absolutely indispensable to theology. And I think it's really just, it's, it, it's a nightmare uh, conceptually if, if, you know, you're, you're trying to develop a, a rationally coherent uh, philosophical worldview, because it's like, on this worldview, not only can we not conceive of who God is, it's clear whether God can even conceive of who he himself is, because it seems to make God inconceivable in principle. It seems to identify him with nothingness. So, you know, instead of Maimonides, maybe we can say, okay, that's, that's no good. Um, let's, let's try something a little bit more mystical and interesting, like Kabbalistic panentheism. Uh, and I'm, I'm kind of fine with that. Uh, although I'm not really a, a, a mysticist, I'm more of a rationalist, but at, at this point I would simply ask, you know, what's wrong with Christianity? If simplicity is a no-go, and if in our description of ultimate reality, we need something a little bit more, uh, shall we say, Trinitarian, something which takes into account freedom, constraint, and the interplay there between, uh, what's, what's, what's the obstacle with, with, you know, accepting the claims of Christianity. And I think, uh, many Jews would say it's because God cannot become a man. The incarnation does not make any, uh, rational sense. It's not even intelligible. So I'm going to address this, uh, issue next. So what can it mean to say that God became a man? Uh, obviously, the incarnation, like the Trinity, is something over which there is a considerable disagreement within Christian theology. Um, I'm going to offer my own views on both these topics, and hopefully they're both within the pale of orthodoxy. So the first thing I would say is that Christian theology is sort of fractal. Uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, on my view, uh, reflect uh, basically freedom, constraint, and the love whereby, uh, you know, uh, consciousness, which is shaped by binary logic, 
uh, pulls out and realizes possibilities from the one valued logic of infinity slash the void slash pure freedom. So to get a little clearer here on my view of the Trinity, um, there is a consciousness such that whatever it thinks of is whatever is real. And that you could call the word of God because it's actually finite. It's, 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 it's not, it's not infinite. Um, but neither is it externally defined. It's, it's self-defined, but it's, it's not all that might exist. Um, it is a self-restriction off of the sort of vast sea of possibilities, not all of which can be realized at once. So that's the sense in which the word is uh, God, but it's, it's not as great as the father in some sense. And then there is the, the love um, that impels this consciousness to realize new, you know, possibilities, specifically new creatures with whom it can have relationships of love um, onward into eternity. And this love is, it's not all of, of the consciousness. It's, it's sort of a, you know, it's an aspect of that consciousness. And so then in the incarnation, what you have is a sort of um, a fractal um, in mapping, um, the word becomes flesh, and then uh, you know we, uh, the word becomes flesh, and the person of Jesus Christ, and we followers of Christ eventually sort of become members of the body of Christ, almost like cells in His body. Um, by the way, uh, for this conception of the Trinity, I'm heavily indebted uh, to a uh, a theory um, called the the um, Cognitive Theoretic Model of the Universe by Christopher Langan. And indeed, all my thoughts on ultimate reality are um, uh, inextricably shaped by that theory. Um, so credit needs to go to Langan for that. Um, I, I'm not saying that I'm, I'm representing all of his views, um, but I am saying that uh, uh, my views are heavily influenced uh, by him. So anyway, you have you have the word who has become flesh, and and a very uh, uh, significant part of at least orthodox small o Christian theology um, has always been that uh, the word made flesh, Jesus Christ, is both man and God. Really, he has two natures, although you know they're they're seamlessly intertwined, um, so that. In practice, at least, um, uh, if if not in theory, there there are there are there's just one will. More about that later. Uh, so Jesus is fully God and fully man, and and now the question is, you know, why 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 do we have to believe this? Uh, I I I think Gregory of Nazianzus said that what Jesus has not assumed, he has not healed. And for various reasons, Christian theologians have believed that if Jesus was not a man, then, you know, men cannot really be saved. I'm not entirely sure what I think about that. Um, I think metaphysically it is possible uh, for God to save us without a Messiah. I think he just chose to do that. Um, 
optionally or super erogatorily as sort of a free gift to demonstrate the depth of his love. But, you know, really, I don't know. So what can it mean to say that Jesus is both God and human? Uh, I think one way of looking at it, it's a little bit silly and informal, but um, just look at it like God playing a video game. When you play a video game, you have a character in the game, which for purposes of the game is you. But at the same time, you know, it's distinct from you, but it's also a translation of you into a different medium. So uh, it put another way, Jesus has a human nature, but unlike say my human nature, this human nature is owned by God. It would be as if um, a, a human being did not have free will, but instead just did whatever God wanted them to do directly. Although in the case of Jesus, it's not as if um, Jesus was a normal human and then at some age uh, he was sort of abducted by God for this purpose. Ever since the human nature, the human being of Jesus came into existence, it was surrounded and interpenetrated, uh, to borrow a phrase from Oliver Crisp, surrounded and interpenetrated by the divine nature of uh, the Word of, of God, the, the shaping consciousness of ultimate reality. And so there was really never a point in time now or then, in which the the human nature and the divine nature of uh, uh, Jesus Christ were not united into really one being and one will, which is why I regard the whole sort of monothelitism, or does Jesus have one will or two wills debate in Christian theology to be sort of pointless. Like there's, there's two aspects here, but functionally it's one will. And you might ask me, how does that work? If there's a human nature and a divine nature, must they not be warring schizophrenically at all times? Well, I think if you look at Jesus, there, it's not like he was without emotional conflict. And if he did not have the capacity to suffer and have conflict, you know, as, as at the Garden of Gethsemane, and what does his incarnation as a human being really mean? But ultimately, Jesus does the will of his Father. The interesting thing here is, I think if you understand how neural integration works, you realize that there's really no problem at all in saying that two, uh, as it were, different persons can function together um, as a, you know, harmonious being that experiences itself as one person. If you consider you know, yourself, you're a sort of a brain for, for most purposes, at least, you know, on this, uh, uh, planet in this material existence. Um, and, uh, the left and the right hemisphere of the brain, we know that they sort of act like different persons when they're separated, but, uh, you know, as in, uh, corpus, uh, cases of, uh, severing the corpus callosum, uh, to control ep epilepsy. We know that the, the hemispheres function as different persons when they're separated, but when the corpus callosum is intact, the experience is, is of being one person. Which isn't to say that sometimes, you know, there isn't conflict between the left and right hemisphere. 
but the emotional conflict is hopefully uh, resolved, you know, by uh, adopting some course of action at some point. And, and I don't see why it can't be this way um, with, with the, the human and divine natures of Jesus Christ, because I consider Jesus to be a, a, a fractal in-mapping of God. I, I consider it clear in some sense that Jesus is not the fullness of God. He's, he's an incarnation. He's a, he's a, he's a self-limitation of God. But the sense in which Jesus is God is that his 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 uh, his human nature is owned and controlled by God directly, as is not the case with any uh, of us. Again, take the analogy of the video game. Uh, you could say that Jesus is the character whom God plays in this uh, simulation, where God is understood as ultimate reality, i.e. a self-simulation. Again, this is very much uh, a, a philosophical picture that indebted to uh, Christopher Langan. So at this point, my rejoinder to Judaism would be to ask, what about this picture of the incarnation is incoherent? What about this is not compatible with God's essence. Where's the philosophical problem here? Is there is there some logical contradiction uh, in the train of reasoning that I've put forward? And if there isn't, then the question is just why could not God have done this in principle? Uh, or is is the objection not a theoretical objection? Is it just that it's somehow beneath God's dignity to do this. In which case the question is, how does God really feel about us? What is the depth of his love? Um, uh, what indignities would he stoop to, uh, to rescue us? And at, at what point would he not be willing to go any farther? I think that if God is love, then uh, the the Gospels and the Incarnation uh, make a profound degree of sense. Although admittedly, it's not what I might have imagined God would do if I were on a desert island and had never heard of the Gospels, but if I were somehow clever enough to think of something like Langan's cognitive theoretic model of the universe and extract the implications theologically. But on some level, of course, it's only right that God's imagination should surpass our own, assuming that is that Jesus was in fact uh, divine and that you know he lived it all and that the things recorded in the Gospels actually happened. And you know you can talk about um, contradictions in the Gospels and um, on some level those don't pose any problem to me because the my basis for believing in Christianity is not only, scripture, so I don't actually require it to be inerrant. To me, it looks like if you look at any scripture, all scripture, you know, including the Old Testament, including other religions, just, it's, it's all, it's, it's, it might be inspired by God, but it's, it's recorded through humans. And so there are errors. 
But does that mean we have to throw the baby out with the bathwater? You know, I, I don't think that's the case. For me personally, all my faith requires is that something very like what was recorded in the Gospels happened. And to me, there's no reason in principle why that couldn't have happened. The laws of physics are not written in stone. Ultimate reality is free to change those because there's nothing beyond ultimate reality that's real enough to constrain it. Why do I believe the Gospels? On some level, it's because I believe the God of love exists, and I believe that this is probably what he would do if he did. To me, it seems that Christianity is more or less the only religion that uh, follows love to its logical conclusion and describes what God's expectations of us are if we are all to be a sort of eternal brothers and sisters over the longest of time frames. What expectations of behavior um, are placed upon us? Is, is it admissible you know, to ever hold a grudge and, and refuse to forgive a sin? Does it make sense to restrict the truth or the covenant to one uh, group of people in particular, or must the message at some point in its fullness reach all people? Now, is it possible that, that Jesus said just all the things that God would have said, the God of love would have said, uh, were he were he to become human, but just as a matter of fact, God never did become human. And, you know, what we have in the Gospels is just either uh, something invented out of whole cloth or the ravings of a madman who sort of stole God's thunder. I can't claim to know the answer to this because I wasn't there. But my suspicion is that since God loves us to the extent that he does, the reality that we inhabit is one which has been designed with very great care. There aren't really any coincidences um, in providence. And so ultimately, if it emerges in history that someone is saying exactly what we would expect God to say if he were here in person, then chances are it's because God actually willed that. It's not a coincidence. Um, and, and would this God, you know, have uh, the creatures with whom he desires a relationship believe a mockery of the truth, or would he have just let it be the real thing? I mean, either one is possible. In the end, it's going to require a leap of faith. If God wanted us to be certain of his existence and what exactly he's like and you know sort of which religion is the true religion he would have made us certain but i uh, for my part am nearly certain that the purpose of this reality or this simulation if you like is uh, among other things for us to cultivate faith to trust god on imperfect evidence and so in the case of the gospels that's what i'm going to do or again to back up to the start of this episode it's what i'm going to try to do I stumble all the time. You know, Lord, I believe, help me with my unbelief. It's exactly where I'm at. Okay, so one more thing that I'm going to address before I cap off this episode. Um, 
it's basically the question of are my views even orthodox enough for me to be you know considered a christian and um some of these issues i'm going to take up in subsequent episodes when i engage um with actual christian scripture but right here i'm going to touch on the question of whether you can be christian but not exactly believe or at least remain agnostic on the question of whether or not um jesus imputed his righteousness to us uh in the atonement when he died on the cross and, and whether or not this is specifically what sort of saves us from god's judgmental wrath first of all i would point out that there's nothing in the christian creeds that seems to say that one needs to accept one particular theory of the atonement rather than any other I mean, for me, the question is whether God needed to shed the blood of his son on the cross in order to forgive us for our sins. And um, I'm actually in, in the same company as Thomas Aquinas when I suggest that the answer is no. You know, and if you understand God as ultimate reality, then certainly there's no constraint on ultimate reality such that it can't overlook um uh, sin without the shedding of blood. Although, of course, there is that verse in in I think Hebrews where he says where it says, uh, "Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness." I mean, if God has made uh, the requirement that forgiveness uh, should involve the shedding of blood, some sort of iron rule of reality. It's not clear why he made the rule, because unless the rule has some sort of logical priority over God and exists beyond him, then, you know, God made the rule. But why did he make it? To me, just based on the definition of morality, there, there can be no ultimate justification for making such a rule uh, besides uh, the justification that hypothetically it, it it is uh what's necessary to maximize the well-being of uh, god's creatures whom god loves so perhaps in some nebulous way you know this uh this this rule that we need to assume the imputed righteousness of jesus in order to be saved is really for our own good but um this just, for me, the, the real question at this point is whether post-mortem salvation is possible. And I see no reason in principle why it shouldn't be. And that's what I'm going to be taking up in uh, the episode or episodes where I engage with scripture. Personally, I suspect that Christians have gone a little overboard on the metaphysical necessity of Jesus' sacrifice. Um, you know, sometimes, personally, I think what it means that Jesus died for our sins is simply that had we not been sinful, he would not have had to die. But we being the creatures that we are, if God himself approaches us in all humility and vulnerability and preaches his morality of, you know, maximal love over the longest of time frames, then what, what are fallen creatures like ourselves going to do except kill him? 
for me, verses like, He made him to be sin who knew no sin, can be interpreted as saying that you know, sin, I mean, death is what happens uh, to sinful people. Death is the wages of sin. Jesus died, so it, it is as if he was made, you know, sin. I mean, one wonders in what intelligible sense guilt can be transferred, you know, from agent to agent, um, you know, from, uh, from, from an agent who committed some sin or crime to an innocent uh, agent or person. The idea that God had to do this in order to forgive his creatures seems to make God beholden to some kind of pre-existing moral principle over which he has no control. So anyway, um, I'm, I think I'm going to leave it there. Uh, in this episode, I finally discovered how to edit, sort of, so I was able to record the episode in little mini-segments. However, um, as a result, I'm not as clear how long this episode has actually run. Um, I, I think we're well within the the 55 minutes or so. But um, just to be safe, I'm going to cap it off here. I seem to have trouble with base 60 arithmetic. I look at all the segments and try to add them up in my head. But I always round down too much. So I'm just going to let it go. Uh, uh, thank you for listening. Until next time.